sort of under the surface right now is there's a start of a push by people on the left to get non-citizens allowed to vote, to get felons and former felons allowed to vote, and I think we have to watch this. I think there are two reasons that you're seeing this, and just the other day in the Washington Post there were two stories on this, so you, you see it is starting to happen. I think there are two reasons going on. One of them is people assume that non-citizens and criminals would vote Democratic, and that's why it's Democrats pushing this. Second, I do think there's a more philosophical thing, which is they want to undermine the concepts of law and national sovereignty and nationhood and so on. And I think that's a bad idea, and I think we ought to insist uh, that citizens should vote and that, and that when you become a felon, you do forfeit some of your rights to live in civilized society. I mean, after all, we lock you up. We take away your liberty. That's pretty fundamental. It seems to me the right to vote is uh, not more fundamental than the right to live where you want to, the right to travel, and so on. Why do you uh, think that they're trying to undermine the, the concept of American sovereignty or American citizenship? Well, that's a good question. I think, there's a, uh, I think there's a sense among some people on the left that those are old-fashioned, traditionalist, dead white men concepts. And uh, it's, it's the same thing that, uh, that goes into, at a more radical level, I think, it's the same phenomenon as talking about a living constitution, which is to say a constitution with no effect. I'd like to see much le far less attention paid to whether Citizen X votes than whether Citizen X has a reasonable choice amongst those candidates he or she has the opportunity to vote for. The problem we have right now is not too few voters, it's too few competitive races for Congress, for Senate, etc. This election, to uh, sum it up, this election will be known for what? Well, it's going to be looked at primarily for did the Democrats hold the Senate and did the Republicans hold the House. But, of course, what it's really going to be known for is something that I, with my brilliant powers of prognostication, can tell you right now, which is I can predict right today the winners of 420 of the 435 House seats. It'll be the incumbents or the incumbent party that has gerrymandered the, the district. So the real answer, the 90% the of the iceberg that's underwater, will be all the incumbents got reelected but because each house is uh, teetering on the edge very closely divided the headlines will be democrats hold senate democrats don't hold senate and same thing with the house that's right you got to look below, below beneath the headlines the lack of competition is really the issue that should be the headline it won't be unfortunately perhaps next time it will the, you mean favoring the incumbent so that uh... yeah. in this country there's an incredible advantage to being an incumbent uh, and it's it's a system has has been built up by incumbents, no coincidence. Imagine which, that. Imagine that. So that there there are public subsidies, et cetera, et cetera, to the point where when an, any given election starts, and the average incumbent has an advantage, built-in advantage, in double figures in terms of the popular vote. So his opponent is starting so far behind, and instead of running for two years against the incumbent. The opponent has a number of weeks in which to run with usually far, far fewer resources, be that manpower, be it money. So the system is geared to ensure that as many incumbents get reelected as possible. That's why 98% of incumbents who run for re-election get reelected. It, and it's an accelerating process. The percentage has been going up. Uh, the, the members of Congress are providing more and more subsidies to themselves. The franking privilege, the congressional radio studio, the congressional television studio, uh, the fact that you know, they, they, they have a huge uh, paid staff. 
staffs to get their word out, um, the campaign finance restrictions that make it difficult for other people to challenge, and even uh, ballot access laws that make it difficult, certainly, for third parties and independents to challenge the incumbents. So what you're saying, really, is that uh, the incumbents uh, have federal uh, campaign financing but the, uh, their challenges do not. Yes, the thing I've been uh, saying in the to-be-governed section of Policy Report lately is elections are already publicly funded. Every time there's something new, like Gray Davis sends out five million postcards to the voters of California announcing some new children's health care program. Not only are they spending the taxpayers' money on the health care program itself, but they spend more taxpayers' money for the governor to send out a notice to everybody saying be sure to sign up. It's important to appreciate that this incumbency advantage, it isn't a partisan advantage. It doesn't particularly favor Democrats or Republicans. Republicans, I mean, partisans of both sides, incumbents of both sides, want these kinds of uh, advantages to continue. And as we see through campaign finance regulations, attempt to build a layer and another layer and another layer on top of each advantage they already have. They're cartels, in other words. That is one theory which I think has a lot of uh, facts to support it. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, uh, the buzz phrase was term limits. Uh, where's that issue now, David? Well, term limits passed in about 21 states thanks to initiatives. Very few legislators term limited themselves, passed by a lot of initiatives. Uh, and, of course, they passed limits on Congress, and then the Supreme Court, by one vote, said states could not limit the terms of their members of Congress. That made it very difficult. Um, the term limits movement turned to asking uh, members of Congress to self-limit, to promise, and unfortunately some members of Congress who did use that to get elected are now breaking that promise, and so it turns out against the combined will of the entire political establishment, it's very difficult. Nevertheless, a lot of legislators are term-limited, and it's made a difference. Yet it has made a very positive difference. Um, if you look at the states, they're mostly in, in the West and the South, but not exclusively, and you see, you see a number of things happening over the last few years. You see far more competition in, uh, in the electoral system. You see more candidates running. You see more contested primary elections as well as more contested general elections. You see closer races in terms of the eventual outcome. Interestingly, you see more female candidates. You also see in a state like California more Hispanic candidates. And not just more candidates, but more Hispanics getting elected. You have now have Asian Americans in the California legislature, which is a new thing and which I think is largely attributable to term limits. Uh, looking ahead, what do you uh, what do you see looking ten years down the the road? Is are there any fundamental changes in in the American political system that you see that are healthy or unhealthy, Patrick? Well, one very healthy uh, change I don't know if you say systemic. It, perhaps it's more in terms of the political culture. Is that the policy mood of the electorate is clearly moving in the direction of limited government? By that I mean a preference for less rather than more government. And this is something that's been tracked since the early 1950s. We're at a similar point, if, if, if you were to chart this, um, as we were when Ronald Reagan came in. I'm not saying people necessarily favor another Reagan revolution. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But the point is that there is no popular um, mandate that is going to be given to the next Congress to expand government. The, you know, issue by issue, clearly, people are not looking for a more intrusive government that's larger, either in size or in scope. But the problem is that without political leadership, as Jefferson said, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. Washington is this huge network of special interest groups trying to expand the size of government one way or another, every day, in every way, through campaign finance reform, through letting non-citizens vote, um, all kinds of ways of pushing more government. So if you don't have a Jefferson or a Ronald Reagan of the first four months of his first term um, actually trying to fight the expansion of government, then it will expand in the face of public opposition.
the big news uh, these days, of course, is the war with Iraq. Um, is that squeezing out any other news or things we should be paying attention to? It is starting to, in terms of people's focus on the election and the issues that will dominate their voting. Uh, the corporate malfeasance, Enron, WorldCom scandal issues did dominate for a considerable period of time. That's no longer the case. It's now largely about the, the war or what stage the war will ne next uh, take. Now, that is, that is going to, it appears, benefit the Republicans, primarily because the president is a Republican and also because the Republicans are uh, better trusted by the electorate on issues regarding terrorism, national security, foreign policy, those kinds of things. What are some of the issues that uh, we should be paying attention to? Well, we certainly should be looking at Social Security. And one of the things that's very frustrating to us is we've spent 20 years trying to advance the idea of Social Security reform, and now we have a president of the United States who endorses it, and suddenly we have the midterm election coming up, and uh, talk is all about war. Republicans are running from the issue of Social Security reform, even though 68% of likely voters like the idea of being, able to, uh, being allowed to have private accounts. So... Some of our friends have been trying to persuade the Republicans that 68% is a lot more popular than you are. Uh, you should be tying yourself to this issue. Uh, nevertheless, the president has told people that in the spring he intends to bring Social Security reform to Congress. So we're still hopeful that after the election, uh, there will be a national debate on doing something about Social Security to avoid the imminent bankruptcy and to allow workers to have control and ownership over their own retirement. Well, thank you very much. Our guests have been David Bose, Cato Executive Vice President, and Patrick Basham, 